0: Hello and welcome to the Music Teacher Coffee Talk podcast. I'm Carrie, And
1: I'm Tanya. We are both elementary music teachers who love to talk shop, preferably over a steaming cup of coffee. This is episode number 92. Today we continue our 2021 Summer Book Club by discussing chapters 3 and 4 of Culturally Responsive Teaching and Music Education from Understanding to Application by Vicki R. Lind and Constance L. McCoy.
0: We'll also be playing some fun summer games, and in our CODA section, we'll give some specific recommendations of our favorite things we are enjoying during our summer break. So, grab your beverage of choice and let's get started. So, for our summer episodes this year, we thought we'd do something a little fun and different. And we're doing some summer games. Yay. Just some silly
1: little games. But we don't have to jump into a swimming pool after a greased up watermelon.
0: Oh, no, not those type of games. No. Save those for your 4th of July barbecue. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So it was my turn to choose the game. And, you know, I I didn't feel like making up my own. So guess what I found, Tanya? (laughs) Okay. A BuzzFeed quiz. I really love BuzzFeed quizzes. I don't
1: do BuzzFeed quizzes because I don't like them tracking me.
0: Well, yeah, this is true. They probably know everything about me now and my obsession with, um, let's see, musicals and, like, late 90s things. But anyways, yeah, it reminds me and of, And like, which golden
1: girl you are and all that. <laughs> yeah.
0: It reminds me of, like, growing up and, like, all the little, like, teen magazine quizzes, you know? Yes.
1: Those were yeah. on paper.
0: I know. So this is, like, the, the new version. Okay, so I found this one, and I think it's hilarious. Okay. So I did not write this quiz. This was, a, uh, this quiz was written by, I'm gonna see if I can say the name right, Hannah... Dobrikaz I think and we'll link to it in the show notes um it's called I'm genuinely curious whether or not you can guess the Broadway shows my dad's trying to describe
1: oh (laughs) so this is her
0: dad's description of a Broadway show in quotes and then you have to guess Tanya what show you think it is it's pretty easy but I think it's hilarious at the same time so are you ready yeah all right show number one the guy with the mask is misunderstood. I don't know. I slept through it.
1: Aww. <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> What's your cast, Tanya? The Phantom of the Opera. Good job. I think you're right about that. Okay. Uh, next show. A woman had a lot of boyfriends at the same time, so she doesn't know which one is the father of her daughter. Everyone dances across the rocks of Greece and sings, "Mamma Mia." <laughs> I love how you're even singing your answers, because that just elevates the nerdiness of us doing this quiz right okay. now. Okay, I'm
1: surprised. These are easier than I thought I know, it would they would
0: be. I but it's more about the descriptions. They just crack me up. Okay, okay. Um, this one is, oh God, I had to sit next to my mother-in-law during the sex scene. There's a lot of teen angst. They really rock out. Oh, is this Spring Awakening? It is Spring Awakening. Because <laughs> there, there's a lot of teen angst and sex. And can you imagine sitting next to your mother-in-law during that scene?
1: No, but I will tell you that when I saw it, like, on the stage in Denver, there were signs that said, this is not, uh, I forget what exactly what the disclaimer said, but it said something like, you know, This is not your Lion King, Disney, fun-filled, like, and there was a woman and her daughter, I think it was actually maybe a grandmother and a granddaughter in front of us, who were, like, talking to the ticket taker, and they ended up, like, um, exchanging their tickets for something else. Wow! Because they didn't know what they were going to see, and, you know, I get that.
0: I, I always hear them tell the story on my favorite podcast besides ours, My Favorite Murder. <laughs> um, whenever they do live shows, they always tell the story about these women who went to the show thinking it was the sequel to The Phantom of the Opera. Spring Awakening? No, no, no. My Favorite Murder. Oh, My Favorite Murder. <laughs> they think oh going my to my fr- Somebody told them that, and they ended up at this show, and they had they were like two elderly women, and they had no idea what they were in for. Wow. Isn't that funny? That is funny. Okay, next show. A guy gets caught in a lie for a girl and cries a lot. I remember him sitting in a chair, question mark, and his arm is broken, question mark? I guess I didn't pay close attention. <laughs> it's that Dear of a It is! Ding ding ding. Okay, this one makes me laugh, but well, you'll know why. Um old English blokes tell jokes and make fun of Shakespeare.
1: Oh, is is that spam a lot? No. No, I'll give you a hint. We saw it together. What?
0: You invited me to go with you to this show. I did. And we giggled. It's funny. And when Why we I... saw it, the guy from Rent played Shakespeare.
1: Is it Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? No. No. I will just have to tell you. You do well. I'm just totally blanking. It's something rotten. Oh. Do you remember when
0: we went and saw that show? No, you I don't? don't remember that. Oh no, no. I'm offended. I mean,
1: no, well, I'm sure I mean, we had a great time.
0: It was a funny show. It's not like the most impactful show. I can't that remember one that show ever seen. at all. It's like it's it was very silly. And the guy who played like the rock star guy from Rent, like the original production, was the guy who played Shakespeare.
1: Okay. And he was like a rock star, like
0: Shakespeare type character. Yes. That's all I really remember is just seeing. I I think I
1: remember going with you, but I don't remember the show itself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I remember, and now I feel sad
1: you don't remember. Oh, well, we'll have to just go to a better show. We will.
0: Okay. Um, this one's probably my favorite. It has the best song. I just thought it said song. A lost and abused woman escapes through baking. She has a baby and a gruff old man gives her his diner after he dies. I love Jesse Mueller. A
1: waitress. It is waitress. And you've been
0: watching Girls Five ever. Uh, Okay, I have to ask you questions about that. Okay. Well, it has more to do with what I can watch that's free versus not free. (laughs) I was very confused. You have to pay now. You have to pay now? Mm -hmm. Okay, I did watch the first three and I want more. That's
1: what they do. Oh, too
0: many subscription services. Mm -hmm. Okay, a couple more, then we'll be done. I remember the cast sat on the stage the entire time and played instruments. There was a couple who fell in love and sang songs together, or sang sad songs together. What? The cast sat on the stage the entire time and played instruments. There was a couple who fell in love and sang sad songs together.
1: That could be so many things. Oh,
0: but you love this one. I mean, you love the movie that it's based on. I do. Because it has one of your favorite buskers oh once once oh i go. love once i know i saw once twice <laughs> you once saw once twice on the stage yeah okay. i've seen i've seen the movie several times yeah yeah a baker made bread i remember the bread looked good the music <laughs> <laughs> <Excuse me. laughs> the music was disjunct bad things happened in the woods and i did not like it <laughs> to grandmother's house yes i think it's in in the the woods woods. (laughs) i just like that it said the bread looked good (laughs) the bread looked good Uh, (laughs) all right last one i love into the woods oh no the three hour nap (laughs) exclamation point they sing everything and everyone looks miserable
1: (laughs) what they sing everything and everyone looks miserable a three-hour nap That could be so many things. Well, but the
0: last word gives you the clue, my friend.
1: Oh, Les Mis! Of course. Mm. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) All right. So that um, I mean,
0: I guess you all who are listening already now know the answers to this quiz. But we'll link to it in the show notes, so you can share it with your geeky musical theater friends. Of course.
1: so we are continuing on our study of culturally responsive teaching and music education from understanding to application and we're talking today about chapters three and four but right now we're going to zone in on chapter four understanding how culture in- no nope, chapter three whoops
0: you just said four. Chapter, chapter three <laughs> excuse me <laughs> and
1: understanding how culture informs learners experiences in the music classroom which this was a very interesting chapter because the first half you and I were just talking off mic um that there was a, a lot to all about biology and culture and nurture versus nature and and that that was all there was a lot here that i honestly did not um work as hard as i should to really understand
0: yeah i had to go back and reread i did go things. back and reread but i
1: mean there are some things that well first of all the thing that stood out was the very first quote if our system doesn't doesn't have a place where a child fits in there's something wrong with the system not the child yeah by william g defore or defore um which like of course kicks off everything about um you know understanding where children are coming from and there's talk they talk about bloom's taxonomy of cognitive domain which is you know always something that in our district we're always going back to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also highlighted something else I wanted to bring out is, um, thus thinking depends on features of the context, not just on the mental activity of the brains, which is a quote from Corey Chavez and Rogoff, Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And this whole idea of, um, the, the nature of thinking and how our culture plays into that before we even get to school. Right. right. And then how our um, the school culture and that I, I found was the most interesting as we further go along to the chapters is, is how school culture does work in harmony with or not in harmony with what the child has experienced thus far. And I thought it was really fascinating. Like these pinpoints are these, um, these places where they say, you know, by the ch- time a child is seven years old, they formed a lot of their taste in music and, mm-hmm. and how um, pliable their music interests are when they're in earlier grades and then in later grades. And I thought it was really funny because, of course, it, it brought out things that I know I already knew and I'm sure many of us already knew that when children are younger, that they are more apt to... Um, the accepting of of musics that you might put upon them that they're not familiar with, oh yeah, and that when they're in that middle school range, that they are more likely to not want to embrace. They want they're more likely to want to rebel against things that that a teacher might introduce to them musically. But um, then, I, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm going all over the place. But I really <laughs> I loved these graphs on page fifty two and fifty three these music preference um higher not hierarchies but these um kind of flow charts of what influences a listener in their music preference Mm -hmm. right and it brought up a lot of um questions because i'm not sure i understand everything here in this flow chart i'm specifically looking at Figure 3.1 sources of variation in the music preference. Basically, it is showing the music and the environment at the very bottom um, and what we're getting to, and then at the very top, the uh, sources of variation in music preference, like um, are they going to accept or reject the music, and all these other things come into play, like physical properties of stimulus, their complexity of the stimulus. The performance quality, um, the meaning of this, the referential meaning of the stimulus, stimulus, stimulus the environment that's happening, their peer group, the family, the educators and authority figures, the incidental conditioning. Now, I was wondering about, like, let's say you're in, in, you're teaching a class and you introduce some very different music to kids, mm-hmm. right? And this isn't really covered in this graph, or maybe it is, and I'm just not understanding, but like... It makes a difference whether or not kids are listening to foreign, quote, foreign music, uh, if they're listening to it with headphones alone, quote, alone within the classroom, mm. or if they're listening to it in a group setting where everyone's hearing the same thing at the same time.
0: Oh, I yeah.
1: think that plays a huge and I was also well, thinking... Well, that's
0: taken into consideration on the graph on the next page, because you can see in situations and contexts, it does take into account presence, absence of others.
1: Oh, well, So it's on that go. other
0: one. But you're right. I don't... It's not specifically on this first graph.
1: Well, I, I just... I mean, this is uh, uh, antidotal, of course, but, like, I, I noticed that when, the, when we were first in the pandemic and we were doing online teaching and I still had middle schoolers and I was um, doing the music from around the world. Yeah. Where they got to choose different countries and hear a sampling of music um, and then reflect on it that I was getting more like oh I enjoyed this um, from individuals. Oh. individual middle schoolers yeah, than they would have given to me like in the classroom setting. Right. Right? No that doesn't because make especially in middle school, eight grades six, seven, and eight, you play a piece of music and the first thing that happens is they all look around to see how others are reacting. Right. So I thought that was just really you know, another another layer to it. And I'm wondering if during this past year when so many of us were teaching online even though we weren't teaching online 100 percent of the time i'm wondering if there was an increase in tastes of music like music that kids um are you know would prefer if there if there was opportunities that online music teachers were giving for them to listen to different music like it seems like that would be a better um place
0: Right, because they're away from the influence of their peers uh-huh. in that moment. Uh-huh. Listening.
1: Yeah. So that's they don't an have to worry thought. about like, oh, I like this Mariah Troop group. Oh, but maybe I don't because right, what's his name doesn't.
0: Yeah. That's anyway. an interesting observation, Tanya.
1: Well, no, I've just. It's. I mean, this is something that we're up against all the time.
0: Well, it's true, and that's why. Um, I mean one of the positive things about embracing the technology, whether you're teaching online or in the room, but having kids individually respond using one-to-one tech versus just having class discussion, right? Because there were definitely some kids that I felt like I got... um, better in-depth and more personal responses from them when they were typing on a Google form or even for younger kids when they were drawing on Seesaw than if I were just to pose a question and ask for dialogue because right. they felt free and open to do that.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. well, and I was also thinking back to um, one specific class of fourth graders that really loved the music from Brazil that we did. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's very close – of course, they're singing in Portuguese, but a lot of those sounds um, were like you know rock music. It it was it was a lot of the same instrumentation with a little bit of variance, like cuicas and um, and of course you know singing in a foreign language and. But we even went a little deeper and heard some more foreign sounds. And they loved all of that, right? All the music that I played from Brazil, they loved. Yeah. And then, and I'm trying to remember what it was. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I was playing um, music for them, not from Brazil, from somewhere else, another country that was, it was very, you know, different foreign music. But I showed a video. Mm-hmm. And their reaction was negative, like, immediately. Interesting. And, like, you know, to laugh and giggle giggle and all that stuff. Yeah. And so that was another thing I was wondering is that, like, I know I've been so excited, you know, in past years, like, ooh, I can show the music performance. And we can hear the music at the same time. But I think there's value in um, just listening Mm -hmm. first.
0: Yeah. I'd go way too quick to the visual. I know that I do because I, I, I have told myself, and I'm there's probably truth behind it, that, you know, kids are such visual learners and they're going to be more engaged if there's a, there's a visual aspect to it. But that's also not me pushing them to to listen without the visual, which I need to do. That's definitely something I've noticed of myself, that I'm just quick to find that YouTube video. Yeah. instead of just play it and have them listen. Well, you
1: could still find the YouTube video, and I've done this for sure, and just play the music and not show them. Well, that's what them. I mean. I just yeah. mean I'm quick to show them right. the video. Right, because I've had kids who are like, wait a minute, um, I see there's a video on your screen that I've like kind of almost closed <laughs> You're there. You're hiding like, it. Later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, yeah, I mean, showing them the video eventually, but having them listen first and not be – not distracted, but just really focusing in on on what they're hearing first that's, right yeah, that's very. but I, I
1: really really appreciate like this whole pinpointing all of these things that that create music listening like why do you like this genre genre more than that genre right? You know yeah. it makes complete sense to me. and I was talking to you about my album group um, that meets like every other week and uh you know we share albums and we talk about them and and i'm always thinking about okay well there's um i'm one of the older members of the group and there's some younger members who like um you know play some selections and i'm like wow i would have never Listen to this and i'm glad i did but i can't see myself listening to it like on repeat Mm -hmm. but maybe that's just a matter of like i'm sure it's just a matter of if i did listen to it on repeat i would like it more and i would like it more and i would like it more um repetition of stimulus right it does give you that heightened attention i'm looking at this graph um anyway it's just very interesting because it's hard to listen to music out of the context of your past Experiences, Right? Yeah. Because yeah. I listen to some... Uh, I, I will listen to some 80s bands, and it does not sound dated to me, because it's been with me my right. entire life. Right. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, I just listened to a podcast today that has so much to do with this chapter, too. I was like, wow, it's just exactly what we were thinking about. So this is Missy Strong's Music at Amplified podcast. Oh, yes. And um, her most recent episode, she did an interview with Dr. Mark Peters, who is a... Um, musicology professor at Trinity Christian College and um he developed a course which is basically what we would think of as the music appreciation Not necessarily music history for music majors, but more music appreciation for non-music majors. Although he says music majors take it too. But anyways, he renamed the course Music in Context. And he doesn't use the textbook. And it's all about teaching students about, yes, there's historical aspect where he goes through different you know, time periods of music, but it's getting away from just, you know, Western European classical music. And instead, he he was talking about how he constructs the class as far as, like, the function of the music. So music you listen to at home. Yeah. And he talked about, historically, like, art songs from the Romantic period, how they were sung in that salon thing. Right. But then also, what kind of music do we listen to at home now? And, like, that constant juxtaposition between then and now and then crossing over different cultures and different areas of the world and anyways it was really cool and it had a lot to do with what this book is about is that the the environment in which the music is listened to and produced in has such an impact on our our perceiving it and liking it or rejecting it
1: right right and yeah that's fascinating also i i know in past years listening is more of an individual thing yeah in the uh, because because the internet but also because of covid right right so um we had a lot more live performances uh, last year there was a dearth of i'm I, I miss concerts i miss live music yeah and you take that away and it's not like people aren't listening to music but how are people listening to music they're listening on headphones like yeah. my son and daughter they listen to music on headphones like more than anything else. Right. right. But I would say
0: the vast majority of people don't go to concerts. I mean, definitely not as often as you go or I go because it's just not a part of their regular... You know, being able to afford it, first of all, access to it if you don't live near a big city, you know? Yeah. And that concert, and this is one of the things he was talking about that when we think about orchestral music and all the music that's been traditionally taught in a music appreciation class, those are music written for concerts. But what we're ignoring is music written for family gatherings, music written for religious gatherings, for Uh celebration. And then, of course, like I said, in the home. So I think it's interesting to think of that because, yeah, I mean, how many people how often I just wonder but I'm sure there's data about this but you know how often do people really truly go to concerts whether it's classical or not classical any type of concert
1: I don't right. think it's
0: as much as you know. No, I think most people's music consumption is either background music or music in movies and you know on the radio and things or music that they're watching and listening to on YouTube and Spotify and streaming services
1: yeah 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 i I mean that's just the reality i think yeah that's kind of sad um it is
0: because we know how live music is so you know that community aspect is so important but to get to the point of what he was saying was he was getting students to appreciate to bring back that word music appreciation the music that's around them all the time and to not discredit that music oh yeah you know that we elevate music that's in a concert. And we, and I'm thinking, again, more classical Western European tradition. We elevate that music as being, you know, the best, the masters, right? Right. And we don't do the same for the everyday music that, you know, a family singing around... You know, at Christmas time. Not that that happens as much as we might want it to happen anymore. <laughs> yeah. But, or just background music being played at a party. You know, like, there's value in all music.
1: Yeah, it's of course. It's just a matter of
0: seeing it and recognizing it and naming it.
1: Right, right. But And so much of it is dependent on the context. Right. And your past, um, yeah, your your past experiences. So in in thinking of past experiences, we were hoping to go to the questions for discussion on page 56. Yeah and I'm sorry did you want to are which one are you gonna did you want to start with are we gonna do
0: I wanted to to think about kind of questions both four and five because it has to do with the idea of of oral skills so one of the the things that this chapter was talking about is um how quickly many music educators go to reading Notation. Okay, yeah, let's go there. And you know, this really, I think, this spoke to us as Kodai educators, both the good aspect of our Kodai training as well as the questionable things of our Kodai training. So, um, the idea that you know, music is is such an oral um, skill, and that. I, I, don't, I would say most cultures around the world, music is passed on orally, not through notation. Right. But yet we here in the United States focus so much on the notation aspect and we and we jump to it quickly. Now, one of the things that I will say about, you know, Kodai and our Kodai-inspired teaching is that, you know, we we do pride ourselves on giving students oral experiences before we jump into written aspect but what I think is interesting is if we look at question five how might having a strong or or sorry how might having strong oral skills assist in learning to read music notation and then the second half of this is really what I was like hmm once one learns to read notation is oral learning no longer necessary or valuable
1: oral learning is always necessary and valuable but
0: I will say that I know 100% that once I quote-unquote present a concept to kids and we've now seen it, and we can read it, and we can write it, I am not doing a good enough job myself in continuing to practice that concept through oral means, like improvisation, for example. That's something right. that I have always struggled with, and I hear a lot of Kodai I think educators a lot of Kodai people that. do, yes. And I think that speaks to this whole idea you know, so many of us were trained to read music quickly, or early, at a young age, and so we are teaching the way we were taught, and we're forgetting to go back, back to, you know, not only what is developmentally friendly, but also what is culturally responsive about right. teaching in a more oral well,
1: tradition. Well, one thing I'd like to bring up that hasn't been mentioned in this is, and I think it really speaks to music literacy. And people's music teachers desire to really show music literacy in their students is because there has been um, the overwhelming perception that music education is not as important as all of these other things. Right. It's an add on. Well, music literacy, and just talking of, speaking of like the very concrete reading note names, mm-hmm. reading rhythms, re- recognizing and reading from from clefts and clefts and different staves um, all of that is very measurable right? right and so when attacked music teachers will say well wait a minute we're reading music and look at what they mm-hmm. these kindergartners they know all the names of the lines and spaces and the bass clef. that doesn't matter if it's not in a context right. that is like well and they're producing music with it or you know So I think that a lot of music teachers mistake that concrete knowing of music things, right? Oh, but my kids can identify an alto clef, or my kids can tell me all the names of these symbols. Like, that knowledge means nothing. Right. Out of context, right? However, it looks good on the surface. Like, you you can make a quiz you can quantify you can yeah. show all of this stuff which is really very meaningless unless it's attached to music um and I think that a, a, a lot of us have felt like well I got to show that there's learning um because we're not valued unless we are assessed right, right? the students need to be assessed And here's the easiest way to do it. But it's really gobbledygook. Right. Separated out from music, because music is an aural art. Yeah. Aural, oral, and you know.
0: Yes. Heart. I just know from my own experience I am striving for finding a better balance. And I will say, especially with my older kids, I feel like I'm better with this with younger students where we just learn a song and we just sing it just for the joy of singing it. Um, right. You know. But with older students, I feel like I'm just quick. Again, this might be now that I'm um, thinking of it, just moving to the visual aspect, thinking that that kind of grounds us, that uh-huh. gives us something concrete, that gives us, you know. Right. And that I am a bit of a control freak when it comes to my classroom to let things go into that world of just kind of like go with, not not letting it go, but I'm, what am I trying to say here? But like the whole improvisatory thing, you know, mm-hmm. just letting students take over. I'm I'm trying to be better about
1: that. Well, and that's hard because you still need a framework where there is exactly that. And what's the framework, right? Yeah. Yeah. And how much do you bring in traditional quote traditional notation um, to that experience? Yeah. And like, what's the end goal? Is to like hanging on the wall and show the administrators and parents that these kids can put the stem on the correct side of the note head like how valuable is that but it takes so much more time um to have uh not just administrators and parents but students understand yeah that because we you know we're so used to school being uh, knowledge being Mm skill-based Or, sorry, learning being skill-based and knowledge-based. Well, and
0: there's a very obvious divide in our students' head, and I'm sure a lot of our families' head, about the difference between music as, like, an overarching thing versus school music being something that you just learn and practice in school.
1: Well, and see, this is why, one of the reasons I was always attracted to the Kodai framework is because... It wasn't school music. Yeah, exactly. Is because these were songs that used to be a huge part of culture, Mm -hmm. and they teach about what life is like, you know, in this time and place, and that it's music of the people. That was, you know, really attractive to me because my first three years of teaching, I hated the music that I was teaching. Yeah. There was no point in going on and continuing a career in passing down stuff that I thought was just um not childlike but childish yeah. and just um not not what attracted me to music for yeah. sure yeah. and so wait so now with that can i jump back to this yeah can you think of it? number 3 question yeah. on page 56 can you think of examples in your own experience in school where some of the information that you formed in your musical knowledge base was not valued or accepted so i was going to briefly talk about um it's it's not that my musical knowledge wasn't accepted. It's actually the other way around, that when I was in choir for, oh, my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and in middle school, it wasn't middle school for me, it was junior high, because I'm that old. But it, I was in choir and band and orchestra, and I got to know the music teacher really well. Yeah. And and I have to really give him props, Mr. Kupadich, um, because... He, well, he led all three of those, you know, choir, band, orchestra, but I was playing bass at the time. I was playing electric bass. Uh And I took lessons a little bit, but mostly I was just sitting in my room and figuring out, like, Fleetwood Mac tunes and U2 tunes, and um, I had two other friends in choir, and we would harmonize together a lot. Right. Right? And he was instrumental, my music teacher, Mr. Capadage, in, like, getting us to kind of play out like we played um one of one of uh my friends she played keyboards i would play bass and then the three of us harmonized so it was kind of a wonky ensemble mm-hmm. you know bass keyboards and a bunch of singing yeah but um we like played incidental music while people were coming in for like the award ceremony right right and so he gave us that opportunity yeah that's and great. this is like musical stuff that I was doing that didn't connect to any of the octavos that we were singing in choir. yeah, And it didn't connect to stuff that we were playing in band yeah. or doing an orchestra. But I, that was something that like, I felt what it just gave me more validation. Like, Oh, you're playing bass, bring it into the school. Yeah. You know? So I don't know, but I've, I think there's other experiences. I think once I got to college, I kind of felt like my, um, You know, pop music, rock music side was not really something that I was going to be doing.
0: Yeah. I can see that. I mean, yeah, for me, my growing up experience in in music education as a kid and throughout middle school and high school was all classically based because I started piano when I was four and then I played cello and then I sang in choir. Right. So I... I always appreciated and envied people who could play by ear. And, like, I love Tori Amos, and still, it's, like, one of my favorite favorite musical artists, and I wanted to play piano and sing Tori Amos songs, but I had to go buy the songbook to be able to do that, Right, right. Um, But as far as in my school validation, um, I mean, again, because I came from the musical culture of classical Western European music, so, of course, my culture was... That's it was the prevalent culture, yeah, um, I remember there were days where in choir students would bring in, you know, like, we would have like free time or whatever and students would bring music and be able to like play it over the stereo and I remember people bringing in like R&B and hip-hop and I was just like oh this is like a waste of my time right now
1: oh I mean because it
0: was just not my musical culture and I had a lot of friends I mean white middle class you know suburban friends who listened to hip-hop and rap I just didn't prefer hip-hop and rap I liked rock music and alternative music but I was not really into hip-hop and rap it just was not something that musically resonated with me so anyway Anyways, I just remember feeling that kind of like snooty snottiness. I mean, and that elitism that we know is so prevalent in music and music education. But when I think about my students and my students of color and my students from various social, economic back or socioeconomic backgrounds, I I definitely can can see and understand that, yeah, they're probably many of my students are not feeling validated in my class or in other
1: music classes. And right, huge. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's hard.
0: So chapter four is called Where Teaching and Learning Meet. And this is where we're kind of starting to tiptoe into the practical application. And then in the second half of the book, there's going to be more of practical so much application, more. which I'm excited about. But um, really focusing and reflecting on the classroom environment and the school environment in which we are asking our children to learn and grow, um, creating... The supportive classrooms that we need to create for our students. Um, I love this whole bit about being culturally, or culturally responsive, caring, and yeah. this idea of what a caring educator should be. Um, just really enjoyed that section. Um, talking about communication styles of students, the value of high expectations. Oh hallelujah! Gosh, okay. I loved that so much. Um, about learning communities. And then, you know, it does also get into some of the bigger issues like politics and the American educational yeah, system. I and... was
1: really zoning in on that, oh, about the, the microsystem, the messiosystem, mm-hmm. the exosystem, the macrosystem, and the cr- chronosystem. And I was thinking, boy, I hope people who are re- researching all this, I-, I can't wait to see studies that come out um, based on our COVID time. Right, that'll be fascinating. Totally, because it it says in here. Because of course, this book came out um, before everyone went on lockdown. They talk about how you know this this macro system and the pol- political climate and economy and society have the least. It still has an impact, but the least impact. And I'm wondering if any if that if that shifted. Yeah. Because it definitely had an impact on these other. Um, realms of like employers, family, friends, teacher, parent—like, totally. It'll be just fascinating to see um, what we have learned from this. Yeah,
0: one hundred percent. Yeah, but in general, with this chapter, I mean, just a common theme that that I kept reflecting on as a teacher who has spent my whole career teaching in um, Title One schools, low socioeconomic schools, is. This idea that you can still have high expectations for all students, and that is how you show caring for your students. However, there's also a balance between having those high expectations and those you know, systems of learning and clear and consistent communication, but then also being culturally responsive in knowing your students and knowing yes. their backgrounds and knowing that learning for all students doesn't look and sound the same. Well,
1: can we zone in and talk about the communication styles? Yeah. Because I really loved this story on page 67. Yep. Where um, one of the authors is talking about observing a white 28-year-old male student working with uh women's choir mm-hmm. and how he asked the choir if they wanted to stand and join him for warm-ups and then he was like half of them are like <laughs> nope he's <was> like <laughs> mollified that like um why aren't they doing what i asked them to do and what's going on and you know he, he there's a disconnect yeah. because he and this is i think that's kind of like a basic teaching thing sure that i've seen you know from you know people that we've coached or had student teachers and, and that, yeah, you, <laughs> it, it. This, cla- this particular classroom of students, they, you gave them a choice. Yeah. You said, do you want to sing the warm-ups? And so they thought, well, looks like I don't got to. Exactly. So I'm going to sit here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that there's like a time and place for student choice. We know this. Mm-hmm. And giving students the opportunity to show their learning in various ways. But being very careful as an educator in the way that you pose questions or you set your expectations to right. say, I, all, I expect everyone to achieve this. Right. And but they, how we're yeah. going to get there might be different but standing up and singing in choir that's not going to be a choice we're going to sing right we might be singing different literature we might be standing in different formations we might be singing in small groups versus large groups but come on people we're here to but, and then
1: you can see like a situ like a situation like this could easily snowball um, into something bigger and messier to deal with, right? Oh, totally. So the teacher thinks, oh, I'm being disrespected, right? Yeah. And then you set up this power struggle between yes. the class and the teacher. And you could see this going really poorly just oh, yeah. from this one thing. Yeah. And this is, I mean, there's so many missed opportunities or, you know, those kinds of things because we culturally don't understand where the other, uh, the, the people that we are, trying to communicate with we don't know where they're coming from and I just you know was reminded again and again of how much code switching that um, so many people have to do all the time and I was also fascinated like on how we look at this code switching like because there's another story that um, um, That Constance Constance McCoy McCoy, talks about growing up in North Carolina and in elementary school and how she dreaded this performance that they were reciting reverse verses from the Bible. And the teacher was adamant about our enunciating our words to a point that I thought was beyond extreme. And she really hated that. But then she talked about as an adult, I realized that the exercise I had viewed as fake and ridiculous was a significant act of caring on the part of my teacher. Mm -hmm. Well, so I had mixed feelings about I that. I did, that too. Because I, yeah. I was like, well, you know, this is, and I, I remember a, a, a long time ago, there was a 60-minute story about a choir director in a all-black community and how she was saying, my rules for my kids are, like, no nail polish, no jewelry, no makeup, and we were very proper in this way and that way. Mm-hmm. And this is looked upon as the way to do it, right? Yeah and the norm but i mean this is like the white arm of white supremacy in music education right mm-hmm. that we are assimilating to
0: right yeah the, I was the
1: quote norm
0: i was taken aback by this story too because i thought this over enunciation just seemed like a way of not respecting the dialect of of Uh, uh, people who are not the same as your own
1: right but but she's also coaching them to be accepted so it's like are we going to (laughs) fight which fight are we going to do Right. right now. Right. But,
0: I mean, when she got to the end of the story, it made a little more sense because she said, you know, she was trying to develop the ability to speak clearly, distinctly, and with poise. And that maybe the enunciation piece was just one aspect of it. But I think it was the bigger aspect of, of public speaking. And... Right.
1: And who am I to say, as, as a white person who doesn't have to think about this. Right. Right who am I to say, you yes, know, what is, what the value is in this. This
0: is Connie's story, and it right. was a great story to listen to from from both perspectives, you know. It's like, oh, okay, that's not where I thought she was going to go with this story. Um, but I, you know, and it actually speaks to that. There was a quote that I highlighted somewhere that I said. Oh, no, where did I find it? Um, it was about the idea of, you know, being careful not to stereotype, um, but also realizing that, um, here we go. Over, although overgeneralizing should be avoided, attention to these tendencies is imperative in optimizing the possibility for effective communication across cultures. So just, just this idea of we don't want to overgeneralize and over stereotype that oh my black students behave this way and my Hispanic students see behave this way and my white students behave this way but at the same time as educators the longer that we are in a school environment we can see within our own school community that there are trends and tendencies that we can recognize oh yeah and we can go from there
1: well yeah and teaching at two different schools you know for the past couple of years it's it's very interesting to see those kinds of things like um the school that I've been teaching at for a very long time there are things that I see in that community that I don't see in the other two communities
0: right um
1: that I have taught in. And yeah, and
0: they talked about that when it comes to um, forming relationships with students and motivations, that this is one of the this is where music educators, you know, we have a bit of an advantage because while well, we don't see our students all day every day, we see them over a period of time. So we get to know families in the community and we get to see how students are changing over time. And that's a benefit when we get to know our students because we know where they've come from. I know with my fifth grade student, if he is acting in a way that, you know, an outsider might feel like it's disrespectful towards me I know that student because I know where they've come from right and I know oh well this is a student who I know you know may not have had a good breakfast in the morning and he could be hungry you know and those are the kind of stories that I might know not know that others people I know that other people
1: don't know well right and that and that always you know for individual individuals it's always worth Digging deeper, right? And exactly. I think like the student teacher story um, about him taking it personally that the the women's choir members weren't you know jumping up when he asked them, "Hey, do you want to sing some warm ups? Come on over here." Um, that taking things personal. I mean, this has been a long time in my my career. That taking things personally is just it's you're just hurting yourself. Exactly because you if you knew the bigger picture, you know. Yeah, that most of the time it's it's not to be, it's not something worth taking personal. It's not doesn't have anything to do with you. Exactly. Right.
0: All right. Can we uh, pick a couple of questions for discussion?
1: Yes, please. Okay. Well, we did. So, um,
0: I I went first last time. So, do you want to go first this time? Now I'm putting you on the spot. Now you're putting me on the spot, and I'm not even on the page. Okay. Sorry. Page seventy-seven. Our chapter four questions for discussion. If you're following along at home.
1: Okay did you have one specific that you know you what to talk I about? didn't have one specific um well I guess we could talk about how do you define culturally responsive caring mm-hmm. what are the attributes of a caring teacher and I I mean everything always keeps coming back to know your students yeah right um be able to pronounce their names properly that's yes. that's like <laughs> that's huge yeah that's number one um, no matter whatever you have to do to get that, to make sure you um, get to know the students. Yeah. Because kids don't learn from people they don't have a connection with. Exactly. And, you know, um, find, if you have st- struggles with, with specific students, find something to appreciate. Yeah. find something to like about that student yeah it doesn't mean that you have to eat lunch with them though that might not be a bad idea yeah
0: sometimes I've kind of forced myself yeah to I've do that done with that with myself yeah. I've,
1: I've lunched in and played games with students that uh I'm like oh, I could think of 10 other ways I'd rather spend my lunch time but you know yeah um it's so important it is. because if the connection is not there then they're just gonna turn off yeah yeah but
0: again I just want to say again to me it's always been that balance of yes I know you and I know you know to a point um, you know what's going on with you but because I love you I have these extremely high expectations for you and I'm going to set up these these clear um, boundaries of you know what we're going to do in class and then help you get there along the way. Um, I've, I've just heard many times um, teachers who have worked with Title One populations or underserved populations say things like, well, my kids won't do that or my kids can't do that. And it just gets on my last nerve when it comes to, you know, whether it's the materials you're presenting to your students or expecting, you know, a certain level of understanding for them. That doesn't mean that if they can't get there on their own, well, I'm leaving you behind in the dust. It just means that I still have high expectations for you. Right. So, yes, I have taught students in... Um, you know, Latino communities, but I'm still doing, you know, folk dances from, you know, we did square dancing, and my students loved it. They absolutely loved it. But then we also did Los Machetes from Jalisco, Mexico, you know, so it's this idea of, that, yes, I'm honoring culture and tradition. And I know I have growing to do. I'm not saying that I am the best at this by any means. That's why I'm reading this book. But the point being, that doesn't mean that I'm not also going to expect my students to do things that are outside of their culture and their comfort zone. Right. So, just had to say. That. Oh, no. I, I,
1: I understand. I totally hear you. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think the only thing, as far as, like, materials go, that one is using... Um, back to what I was talking about at the very beginning of my career, I think that um, you can sell almost anything to anybody if there's a connection there. 100%. And if you yourself like the material. Yes. Because that – and that has nothing to do really with what we're talking about in this book. But if you don't like the material – That you're, if you don't like the song, totally, you're doing, if you don't like, and that is why I have put my foot down several times, you know, for whatever, um, yeah, if you don't like it, it's really hard to sell it and you have to, there has to be meaning behind it. And, um, yeah, I'm, this is one of the reasons that I turned to Kodai teaching is because I love the material and I love that framework. Um, But, yeah, knowing your students. And then I guess, I don't know, maybe there are some times where they just won't like something. Well, sure.
0: But, But you can also teach kids how to have discourse in a way that's, you know, I just don't want to say respectful in the way that they have to, you know, bow down to what I'm saying but the point is you can you can raise your you know dislike of something in a way that that moves things forward that's not just for the sake of digging in your heels right yeah
1: and often if the connection is there and the enthusiasm for the material from the teacher is there the kids come along oh yeah with that
0: yeah Um, I mean that said
1: do do things with a purpose Um, any material you use should be meaningful yeah you know, yeah, and it tongue. talks
0: about you know about I don't know if they use the word rigor, but I know they talked about high expectations and you know the difference between just keeping kids busy, right? And keep you know that the work should be meaningful to students, and that goes back to you know some of our other book studies. You know, teaching for musical understanding, right? This idea that you know students should be you know deeply involved in the in the process of musicking and not just doing worksheets right right? oh for sure
1: no and it should never be and I know that that's a hard sell after this pandemic year but it should never be that I'm just taking up their time in a musical way right so I can get to the end of the day I think you got to look at your career choices or look for some awesome <laughs> PD yeah. when you're feeling like that. And totally. I, I, not to say I haven't felt like that. Like oh, my, yeah. yeah. My whole first three years, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm just like a camp counselor selling wares that I do not like. And yeah. I got to <laughs> change change things.
0: Alright, so the the question I chose from chapter four and this this could be a whole podcast on itself, so we have to be brief, Tanya. Okay. Number seven, how does our political system influence music education directly and indirectly? I know. See, this is I did I was scared to even say it. I mean, when I was reading this section I think just so much of me just went back to that place of feeling helpless and feeling like, well, this is so much bigger than me, and I don't know how to fix it, and I don't know how to make things better, and you know, this is talking more about what's happening at the secondary level, but it is still just, you know, and they even say in the chapter, we don't have answers for these things. These are things that we're constantly dealing with and involving, but just to have the awareness of it, first of all. We have to be
1: comfortable with non-closure.
0: I know, and I hate it. Yeah. i absolutely hate it but um
1: i just i wanted to get your opinion on this tanya does our political system influence music education directly and indirectly oh my well well in
0: this i'm I'm sorry i'm going to interject and just say (laughs) once again this speaks to you know so often we see in these facebook groups and on social media and whatnot teachers who don't want to admit or understand that teaching is political teaching Teaching is is a political act teaching music is a political act and it is it is influenced by political acts yeah so for us to just be naive and say i just want to teach music this doesn't affect me it doesn't work
1: this way well i think this kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier in the podcast about how we um as a society we value quantitative yep stuff right yeah that's how we show growth yep and that if, if it's not, if it can't be measured that way, then we don't see the value of it. And yeah. I think that that is further um, amplified by our political system when you're talking about race to the top or mm-hmm. um, no child left behind mm-hmm. and all of those. And yeah, well, it is and- a whole other podcast because we could talk about our political system and we could talk about the testing system and how the world stops um, uh, based on these tests and makes money for these textbooks companies and I mean it's all very gross and I'm not a fan Um, and it also means that things like music education which like we've been saying you can't quantify exactly are going to fall by the wayside because it's not measured in the same way you can Sit a kid down and have them take a math test and say, Okay, well, in August, this child was this good at this math. And now it's February, and they're this good at this math. And it doesn't work like that in music.
0: Yeah, and the specific example that they even mentioned, this exactly has happened to my students where they go to middle school and they request to be put in choir or band or orchestra or whatever, and they're not allowed to take those electives because they have to take remedial this or Mm -hmm. they have to take an ELL class because they're a second language learner. And it's just unbelievably frustrating And they're
1: double-dosed. And they're double-dosed because
0: these these testing systems, Systems which are biased and are not culturally responsive or relevant to many of my students you know they're they're testing poorly according to these
1: measures of right. academic success and then success. your school district and doesn't get as much money yeah and it's right. just like this
0: constant cyclical thing and this is where i go back to that feeling of like helplessness because i'll see a student who comes back to say hi and oh what did you were you able to get any music classes no they put me in You know, a second math class because they felt like I needed that and I don't know what to say to that student other than well you know do you want me to call or can I advocate for you in some way but you know so often then that's as far as it goes and the student says no it's okay thanks you know and I'm like well I hope you can get back to music sometime but I know that it won't be and it's so disheartening you know for us in the elementary level to feel like we, we we do our best and we know we have more to do, but we do our best to create these environments where all students can be successful, but then that's taken away from them at the secondary level.
1: Yeah. I feel like um I was thinking a lot during this chapter, um, about the score guys. Yeah. Who do the score podcast, Justin and Eric. Yeah. And I can't remember which episode it was, but they were talking in one episode about how they take beginners you know right. that in their programs because because I was thinking as you were talking about yeah. how if a kid gets out of music during middle school say how
0: do they get back how in? do they get back
1: in because um you know we have kids that maybe are beginners in high school yeah and how many programs do you know in our school district and I really honestly don't know I don't know that either. would say okay well there's this kid who wants to play trumpet who maybe He's played a tiny played bit that. or didn't play yeah. at all yeah. do we let this ninth grader 10th grader 11th grader in to play is there beginning band
0: in 10th grade yeah
1: Yeah. is there beginning anything in 10th grade i would
0: think the answer is no but maybe we don't know enough about that but
1: we don't know but then also (laughs) then that
0: also brings fourth the question of what ensembles are being offered right you yeah. know what if you have, have a kid
1: who plays mariachi exactly um and who is, is able to play
0: guitar by or guitar by ear and they're able to play so many of these tunes but is there an opportunity for them
1: yeah in some schools there is exactly yeah. we just need more we do
0: So now it's time for our CODA section where we give a recommendation of something we're enjoying in our summertime, downtime.
1: Yes. All right. So I'm just reading reading a lot and listening to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. Because I love podcasts. And it's good while you're doing laundry. Sure. Um, and all other things. Okay. So Slate has a lot of excellent podcasts. One of them is called Working Um, There's a number of hosts that are on Working and they talk about like the working lives of specific people and specific careers. And it sounds kind of boring, but it's actually fascinating. Um, And it's just, I I just love learning about what other people do. Yeah. You know? Um, So in, this is not the latest episode, but I wanted to specifically recommend an episode that is titled How Dialect Coach Samara Bay Helps Actors Learn New Accents. And this, um, accent dialect coach, Samara Bay. She works on movies and TV shows, and so she helps people perfect their accent for specific characters, Yeah, and it's just fascinating, and it's a lot of fun to listen to, um, and I learned a lot, and uh, I love Irish accents, and at the very end, she coaches the guy that is interviewing her through an irish accent and it's very it's very fun that's fun yeah so what about you carrie what are you enjoying
0: okay so i'm gonna recommend a podcast as well so um in the heights we all know came out recently and i do have hbo max so i watched it in the theater in the heights and then i've since watched it at
1: home um, two more times. I cannot watch it at home. I'm oh, so jealous. Oh, yeah,
0: no. I'm, we got in the... Our, uh, HBO Max as part of our cell phone plan. It's not like something we would go out of our way to... But whatever. I'm enjoying it. So, um, anyways, there was a podcast that I stumbled upon on HBO Max, but you can also listen to it on Apple Podcasts and probably other places. It's um, The Making of the Movie, In the Heights, El Suenito. It's hosted by Eva Longoria, and she interviews Lin-Manuel Miranda as well as Chiara alegria who wrote the book, um, you know the dialogue for mm-hmm. the show, and then Alex Lacamoire, who is involved in all the musical aspects of the show and the movie, directed the music in the show. And um, there's only three episodes, but it kind of takes the show through the history of how it was created for the stage, talks about the music specifically, and then the last episode is how they transformed it to the movie and the changes that they made, the characters that they added and took away, and um, yeah, it was just really interesting. So. That's awesome. If you are so into In the Heights as I am and Lin-Manuel Miranda, it's just a really fun listen. <laughs> We've reached the double bar line. Thank you for listening to Music Teacher Coffee Talk. Show notes can be found at musicteachercoffeetalkpodcast.com You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Just look for
1: Music Teacher Coffee Talk. If you enjoyed this show, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving us a review on iTunes to help others find this podcast. In our next episode, we'll be discussing chapters 5 and 6 from Culturally Responsive Teaching and Music Education from Understanding to Application by Constance McCoy and Vicki R. Lind. Ooh, and this will be the application part, so you're yeah. really going to want to listen. Until next time, this is Tanya. And this is
0: Carrie, wishing you happy musicking.